God bless you. Open your Bible to Genesis. Genesis, that's all the way to the left. Genesis, chapter number 2, in verse number 15. Now, we've been talking all week long, about, or all month long, about lost and found. This morning, we're probably going to dig a little bit deeper than we have in the previous months. We're probably going to get a little bit more into the, uh, the, the, the roots of the Scripture. And, and we're going to spend a lot of time in the Scripture this morning because it's not just important for you to understand that God wants to save you. It's also outlandishly important that you understand why it's okay for Him to save you, why it's okay, why it's lawful for Him to save you because sometimes when you're born again, you don't feel born again. Sometimes when you're born again, you can't understand, well, why do I have an ear infection? If he said that by his stripes I'm healed, I don't feel like this stuff is working for me the way I understand it to be. But at the same time, you've got to get a picture of why it's lawful for him to have saved you, for him to have found you in your lost situation. And it all began in a garden uh, some thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, So what happened is, is God over the period of six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. And there's theologians that believe it was actually one day. There's theologians that believe it was thousands of days because we have scripture that says that one day is to a thousand years to God. I personally fall in that category, but that's my opinion. I wouldn't claim it as hard doctrine if Jesus came in here and said, no, 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 I I really did it in six 24-hour periods. I'd give him a high five and say, yes, you did. Because I'm not committed to understanding. I'm committed to believing. And that doesn't mean that I don't want understanding. It doesn't mean that I don't seek after knowledge and wisdom. It just means there's some things in this Bible that you've got to take by faith. Faith. I can't see it. I can't touch it. I don't have, I don't have God's uh, uh, punch list on, on exactly how many hours it took him to make the, the elephant and the zebra and, and to make grass and alfalfa and all these other things. I don't have that timetable, so i just got to believe by faith that this word that he inspired into people to write down for you and me is true from the beginning to the end. So through life, we see that that we don't always feel necessarily saved. Well, it all started way back in Genesis. And what happened is God uh, created everything and He he created humanity on the sixth day. Uh, But then sometime later, the Bible says that He formed man. The Bible says that he formed man out of his likeness and out of his image. And in the Hebrew, in the original text, it looks more like he formed him out of his shadow. So what it would be is, I don't know if you guys can see my shadow on this wall. So what he would have done is he would have taken and the Shekinah glory of God would have shined over who he was and his shadow would have been there. And the Bible says that he literally took dust or dirt and he formed man, he formed Adam in his likeness. And in his image, he basically took a shadow. Have you ever seen somebody that that puts artwork on the wall and and they trace the artwork like that? God took his shadow and you and me are formed by the hand of God in his likeness and in his image. So when you get to heaven, God's not going to look like somebody, Jab of the Hutt. He's not going to look like some kind of weird thing. He's not going to look like a goat with four horns. He's not going to look like anything like that. He's going to look a lot like you. He's going to look a lot like me because me and you are formed in his likeness and in his image. So he formed man out of the dust of the earth and then the Bible says that he breathed into him. 
He put His Spirit into him. The the Holy Spirit of God became the life-giving force that took mankind and caused mankind to not just be a creature, which is what the animals were, but was what caused mankind to be an authority in the situation that man was put in. He said, you are to take dominion over the earth. You are to make sure that the animals do this. Matter of fact, Adam, I'm going to let you name the animals. You can name this one whatever you want, that one whatever you want. But it was the Spirit of God that separated him from all the other animals. You and me did not evolve from some amoeba that climbed its way out of a mud hole millions and billions of years ago. You and me did not come from a big explosion in the sky that somehow created life. It didn't happen. It's not going to happen the way you and I were created is somehow in the mind of God he created man in his likeness and in his image and then he formed him out of the dust of the earth and then he put the ruach, the breath of God, the spirit of God on the inside of man and it completely separated man from everybody else. And I don't care how strong anybody else says it and I don't care how committed any other teacher is to the ideology, if it's not in line with the Bible, I don't believe it and I'm not going to allow my kids to believe it. Give them an F. I don't care. They were not formed out of some kind of nonsense, crawling out, all of a sudden getting legs, all of a sudden getting a tail, losing a tail, and now all of a sudden you got a human that creates something like an Apple computer. Didn't happen. Not a chance. So Adam, uh, the Bible says, he's uh, uh, created and, and then the Bible says that God takes him and he puts him in a garden. Verse 15. And the Lord took man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Number one, you have a place of blessing. There is a place where God has put you. If you're in this church, I believe wholeheartedly that the Spirit of God has drawn you to this church and that God has put you into this church and He has put you into this church to not only be blessed by the powerful praise and worship, to be blessed by the teaching, but also to be a blessing. God said this. He said, I put Him there and then I ask Him to dress it and I ask Him to You have a place of blessing and everywhere God puts you, He has a job for you. Everywhere God puts you in this kingdom, the way you get to the fulfillment side of Christianity is you learn how to dress it and to keep it. In your life, you're constantly working on it. You're finding out, am I doing anything? Listen, this is a Wednesday night uh, message, uh, so just bear with me. But you pray like this if you're dressing and keeping it. You say, Lord, is there anything in my life that offends you? Is there anything in my life that you would rather me not do? You are dressing and keeping your garden. You come to the house of God. You put your hand to the plow. You see a Christian or anybody in need and you recognize that it is my job to dress it and to keep it. Everywhere He puts you, He puts you in a place, but He puts you in a place with a job. You're an ambassador for Him. You have the Spirit of God on the inside of you like Adam did in the beginning. Verse number 16. And the Lord God commanded. This is the very first time that God commanded anything. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree you may freely eat. Listen, I have three children. Uh, Just yesterday, I had to stop Trinity from swinging on the cabinet while she was trying to get a snack. But in my home, she is freely allowed to eat anything that we are eating. There's not a time at dinner where, where we sit down and go, okay, uh, Walker Lee, you can have dinner. Uh, Haley, you can have dinner. But Trinity Bell, I'm going to need $5 for you to have dinner at this table. She's two. There's no place there because in my house, I am the father, I am the daddy, I am the priest of my home. Gentlemen, you are the priest of your home. In my home, I am the father, I am the daddy, I am the priest, and my children are freely allowed to eat of the fruit of any tree that is in my garden. Does that make sense? So Adam was allowed to freely eat of any tree in the garden, but God commanded him, and then he said this, he said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you should not eat it, you shall not eat it, For in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. The biggest lie in modern Christianity is there's no consequences. The biggest uh, deception in modern Christianity is not that God loves you. It's not that God uh, uh, wants to bless you. All those things are true. But the biggest deception in modern Christianity is that there are no consequences. Now understand that Adam and Eve were in a place called the Garden of Eden and they were there and everything was wonderful and God was denying nothing from them except for one tree that had a certain kind of fruit that the fruit was not all that important other than it would give them knowledge of good and of evil. So now they would have the ability uh, to see uh, the the scales on their eyes would be off, their eyes would be open and they would be able to see the negative attributes of the world and they would be positioned in a place where they were away from God because God had told them not to eat it. But in your life and in my life, we have to understand there's a place of blessing where God has a job for you. But in that process, he's going to put some commands on your life. And if you don't follow after those commands, there will be consequences. It's a Wednesday night message. Y'all better hold on. This is just the, this is just the introduction. I'm almost done with the introduction. There's consequences to your life. Smoke two packs of cigarettes a day for 50 years and tell me there's no consequences. My grandfather, the one I spoke of, who had Alzheimer's, also had emphysema. It was one of the worst things to watch on the planet. I don't care if you smoke. Doesn't make me any difference. All I'm telling you is there's consequences to your actions. Drive 150 miles an hour, take your seatbelt off, and let go of the steering wheel. You will have some consequences. Life is filled with them. The the Bible indicates this from the beginning to the end. The New Testament, when when people say, well, I just believe in grace so much. Well, great. Well, here's Jesus' version of grace. He said in the law, it said that you can't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, if you just look on a woman with lust, you've already done it. Jesus takes our job our dressing and our keeping and he takes it from this level and he takes it to this level and he says, guess what? There will be consequences if you don't follow after my commandments. Bump your neighbor and say, I'm glad I came to church this morning. Your life 
is not your own. We're going to map that out in just a minute. But it doesn't belong to you anymore. If you said yes to Jesus, then you live in His garden. You follow His commandments. You dress and keep His garden. He gives you free access to all the bananas and all the apples and everything in the cupboard. But He says, I need you to leave what I have set apart for myself alone. Your life is not your own. It belongs to Him. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. Hallelujah. And I will make him a helpmate. And he goes on to talk about his wife. So what happens is, is man is placed by the Spirit of God in the garden and he's given a job and he's told this is how you do it. This is why you do it. And these are the commandments I need you to keep. Uh, Genesis 3 and verse number 1. Here's the first opportunity that we have on record of mankind having the option to choose right over wrong. The Bible says in verse number 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Number 1. Uh, uh, the serpent. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that, that the devil is called the old serpent. So we know for a fact that this is the devil himself that has come to speak to Adam and Eve and he's talking to Eve at the same time. And number one, if you ever see a snake talking, just walk away anyway because that's kind of weird. Uh, but number two, uh, the, 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 the devil shows up and, and begins to tempt Adam and Eve. And I've heard it taught my whole life that he begins to tempt Eve. Well, here's the scenario. We're going to find out in, three, in about three verses from here that Adam was right there with her the whole time. So the Bible says that the devil is beginning to tempt Eve. And here's the thing. Number one, it's kind of weird that a snake talks, right? Completely unexpected. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Temptation always comes from the place where you least expect it. It's not normal for a snake to talk. It's completely unexpected for a snake to talk. So temptation will show up in a form that you're not anticipating in a manner that you have not expected. Verse number 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Verse 3. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God has some commandments. He wants us to keep them. And He says, don't eat it. And listen to me. He says something very interesting. Don't even touch it. When temptation shows up in your life, it will come from an unexpected place. Number two, don't you play with it, because it will make a fool out of you. The minute that you sense temptation rising up on the inside of you, it's at that season, it's at that moment, it's at that time, then you have to find a way on the inside to reject that situation and move in another way. The devil comes in and begins to speak to Eve. Eve says, well, we can eat of everything except for this one tree because if we eat of this one tree, it's going to cause a big problem for us. We'll end up dying. And the serpent says this too in verse 4. It said, the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. Blatantly, with conviction. Listen to me. You can turn on any television channel on the market right now. And somebody is looking into that camera 
and they are lying to you with as much conviction as any human can speak on the planet. They are looking into the camera and they are blatantly telling you something that is not true, that is contrary to the will of God. But here's the scenario. If somebody says something long enough and with enough passion and with enough conviction, then sooner or later some group will begin to follow after that thought. Example, there are people today that say the Holocaust did not exist. There are museums with pictures of, of, of Jewish people walking into death chambers where you can count their bones. There are pictures of graves with, with, with bodies stacked, look like wood stacked in a pile. And there are people that are saying the Holocaust did not exist. It is nonsense. It can be proved a thousand times over. But if you say something with enough passion and enough conviction, then at that standpoint, somebody's going to start to believe it. What we see in our world today, we see people constantly believing a lie, not because they don't want to believe the truth, but because the lie is, com- is presented with overwhelming conviction. ESPN, the, these past few weeks, in these past months, has promoted a football player that has chosen a lifestyle that is contrary to the word of the living God and they have promoted him. The commissioner of the National Football League had co- personally called around several different football teams and asked them to pick this guy up and at least let him be on a practice squad because they wanted to promote this other lifestyle while two short years ago a man named Named Tim Tebow was crucified for getting on his knees and thanking God every time he scored a touchdown. People are pushing an agenda and it comes from the most unexpected places. If you would have told me 10, 15 years ago when we were watching Herschel Walker, when we were watching Walter Payton and we were watching those guys and we were going to say something like, well, probably in less than 20 years they're going to be pushing the same agenda that Hollywood's pushing in the most manly and overwhelmingly rugged sport that that, that, that arguably the United States has. If you want to see one level deeper, somebody say yes. One level deeper, the reason it's the National Football League and not tennis is because the whole ideology behind that lifestyle is that that it's not tough and it's not all these other things. So what they want to do is they want to say, look, he's tough and he's this. That's the other layer. They don't care about tennis and all that other stuff because they're trying to push an agenda. The serpent comes in so subtle and he comes in so passive and then all of a sudden he just stands up and he says, you will not die. It's a lie from hell. It's a lie. It's going to be a lie until Jesus comes back. I got to move on. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, this is the devil still talking, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods. That word gods there is not gods like what we talk about, like Greek mythology. It's actually the word Elohim, which is talking about the plural of God. So he's saying you'll be like the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, knowing good and evil. Verse 6. 
And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, let me tell you something. Temptation is not ugly. Temptation does not show up in a way that you would not desire it. On the contrary, temptation shows up in a way that you would desire it. It looks really tasty. Looks really pleasant to the eyes. Guys, it's going to look like somebody that's out of your league. Ladies, it's going to sound like something that's just too good to be true. Temptation shows up in a way that is perfectly positioned to target you. Isn't it interesting that Eve and Adam could have spent the rest of the day just naming off the fruit that they were allowed to eat, but instead they focused on the one they couldn't eat? If we would count our blessings, instead of trying to figure out why this God of heaven who's so good would withhold something from us, number one, He won't withhold anything. Everything that he offers you is for your benefit and everything he tries to keep you from doing, guess what, is for your benefit. Just the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not lie. How many of you know that if you don't spend your life as a pathological liar, you're probably going to have a better life? Thou shalt not murder. How many of you know, if you don't go around murdering people, your life is probably going to be significantly better. The Ten Commandments are not an electric fence to try to keep you into something. They are literally a recipe for the life that God has laid out for you. Honor your father and your mother. How many of you wish you could have some of those teen years back? Don't commit adultery. You'd probably stay married longer. These are some of the things that God has established for us to do. But the devil comes in and he tries to put a spotlight on something that God has for your benefit asked you and told you not to do. And he's trying to shine a light on it as if the God of heaven who gave you children, who gave you breath in your lungs, who gave you everything that you have from the going up of the sun and the going down of the same. He gave you everything and now the devil's coming in trying to shine a spotlight on the one thing that God has asked you not to do. The woman saw that it was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and gave also to her husband with her. Didn't say she had to go get her husband. Didn't say her husband wasn't right there. Said her husband was right there with her. He probably had his iPhone out video and going, I can't believe there's a snake talking. Wake up, Adam. Gave to her husband with her and did eat. Verse number 7. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves apron. Man was in right standing with God for approximately 15 verses in the Garden of Eden. Fifteen verses in the Garden of Eden. 
the rest of the book is all about getting you back in that position. You see, immediately God had to throw Adam out of the garden because he was found guilty. Immediately, Adam had to go to a fig tree and cover his nakedness and his lies. Immediately, the man and woman who were able to walk around with the God of the universe now had to be expelled from his presence. The rest of the book, we're three chapters in, the rest of the book is about how he's going to put you back where you were. If I could just point it, how he's going to find the lost. The Bible says that Jesus was born of a virgin. The reason he was born of a virgin is because everybody born after Adam and Eve have the seed of Adam in them, and the seed of Adam is tainted with the darkness of sin, and in that position puts you in a place where you are born in sin. You're stained. You can't live in the garden. You can't live that life. You can't live the abundant life that Jesus paid for because you are tarnished. You're damaged goods without Jesus. So Jesus comes and he begins to uh, live a great life and uh, he, 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 he raises up and at just a young age he's, he's found in the temple teaching and his mama says to him, he said, Jesus, where you been? I've been looking all over for you. And he, should, he said, he said Mom, he said, here's the deal. He said, you should have known. I'd just be about my father's business. And Joseph's like, I don't see any wood and a hammer. Jesus wasn't talking about Joseph. Talking about his father. He lives a life and he shows up on the scene in, in relatively grand fashion and he walks up to a place uh, where John the Baptist, his cousin, uh, was, was baptizing some people and he walks up and John the Baptist all of a sudden says, Behold the Lamb of God who, who takes away the sin of the world. And he said, John, I need you to do something for me. I need you to baptize me like these people. John says what you and me would have said. I can't baptize you, God. I've had men of God that I look up to call me for prayer, ask me to come and lay hands on them. It's exactly what I say. I can't. Who am I? Jesus said, who am I? Or John said, who am I? And Jesus said, understand something, John. I didn't come here to be put on a throne. I came to get what was lost, found. I left a throne. So he goes and he gets baptized. And when he comes out of the water, the Bible says the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. And, and the, the, the God's voice from heaven, the Father, speaks down and says to him, he says, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then he goes about uh, picking up disciples out of everybody. And he grabs this guy, and he grabs this guy, and he grabs this guy. And he takes them with him. And he says, We're going to go revolutionize the world one man at a time. He says, Watch this. I'm going to teach you how to catch. I'm going to teach you how to find the lost in church because believe it or not, there's people who sit on church pews that don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to teach you how to catch those. 
I'm going to teach you how to catch some of them that everybody else writes off, that everybody says is crazy, that everybody else looks at and says they're an outcast, they're ostracized, nobody could love them to the point that they've got to go live in a graveyard by themselves. I'm going to teach you how to catch those kind of people. I'm going to teach you how to preach to lots of people. I'm going to teach you how to make sure that you take care of them. I'm going to teach you how to preach to a few people. I'm going to teach you how to preach to people that everybody hates even though they have influence. I'm going to teach you how to find the lost. Have you ever seen, uh, there's a show on TV I like, uh, where they go and they dig for gold up in Alaska and stuff, and, and literally they move hundreds of thousands of pounds and tons of dirt for just a little bit of gold. I'm talking dump truck after dump truck after dump truck, and then at the end of the day they've got something that barely fills up a mason jar, and they're all happy about it. Because you're not looking for what you can see. You're looking for what's lost. They're not looking for the dirt. The dirt's everywhere. Whatever. I'm looking for something that's difficult to find. So Jesus goes on. He lives a perfect life. He heals the sick. He, he opens blinded eyes. He, he opens deaf ears. He, he changes things. He, he raises people from the dead. He constantly talks in stories, and we call them parables. The reason we call them parables is very interesting. The same word that we get parables, the same word we get parabola from. Parabola is an arch, and an arch is the strongest structure that you can have when you're building anything. If you ever see a big bridge, whether it's a cable made of arches or stone arches or iron arches, it'll always be an arch, there'll always be a parabola, which we can say there'll always be a parable because in a parable you can remember it. When I say the Golden Gate Bridge, you immediately get a picture of it and you see the parabola that's sitting there. And when I say to you the parable of the sower, you immediately remember the parable and that's why Jesus spoke like that so you and I could remember it in our hard times and trying to figure instead of trying to figure out a bunch of religious rhetoric that we cannot remember. He taught him parables, confound the wise. From top to bottom, they couldn't figure him out. Who is this man? Why is he so nice to sinners? Why is he so comfortable around holy people? Why does he take such a problem? Why does he have such a problem with religious people that hurt people and put people down? Why does he do all these things? Who is this man? Completely confounding the world, but on one mission. Save that. Jesus teaches you and me how to deal with what Adam and Eve dealt with. The Bible says that Adam and Eve were in the garden. Obviously, they were alone because the only people that that were around them was Adam and Eve. And then you had God, and God wasn't there yet because God says He was going to show up a little bit later and try to walk with them in the cool of the evening. And actually, the cool of the evening is indicative of the word ruach, which means the Spirit of God, which means when they heard God coming, they heard the Holy Ghost moving through the bushes like the sound of a mighty rushing wind. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Oh my gosh. We didn't do what we were supposed to do. Why do I feel so bad? Why do I feel so terrible? I I was so comfortable around my father, but now I feel terrible. Quick, Eve, get some leaves. No, a bigger one. (laughs) It's the leaves. It's covered up. They're in the garden by themselves. And you think, well, what would I do? How do I know what I would do there? 
tell you what you do. You do what Jesus did. Jesus got baptized. The Spirit of God descends on the microphone of the dove. God says, my beloved son, whom I will please. And Jesus walks off by himself in the wilderness. And when he gets there, that old serpent shows up. And I can hear the devil's thoughts. I can hear him say, well, I'll just do what I did before. The last time I was dealing with humans without an earthly father that have this divine DNA, the last time I just twisted the word just enough. A half lie, a half truth is a whole lie. So he gets there and he says, here's the deal, Jesus. You've been fasting. I know it. I get it. I bet you're hungry. Mr. Powerful Man, Mr. Raise the Dead, Open Blind Eyes. How about this? How about you turn those stones to bread? And Jesus said, it's written. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The devil's put back on his heels for a moment. And he comes back a little bit stronger. He says, okay, Jesus, you're so tough. Jump off of this pinnacle. Jump off of this high height because the scripture says your Bible, which you just decided to quote for me, Mr. Reverend Jesus, your Bible says that God will make his, give his angels charge over you lest you dash your foot against the stone, lest you hurt yourself. And Jesus didn't go, whoa, 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 let me think about that. No, 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 no. He said, it is written, you don't tempt God. Now the devil's getting frustrated because he doesn't know what to do. He says, how about this? I'm the prince of the power of the air. I'm the ruler of darkness. When I was flung from heaven, I did my very best to take uh, 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 my position here and rule and reign. And if you'll just bow and worship me, I'll give you everything. Jesus said, get behind me, rat. It's written, serve the Lord your God and Him only. The devil leaves. Temptation shows up in the most unexpected places. Jesus showed us you deal with the devil with the Word of God. That's why at this church, we're not just going to get people born again, but we're going to get them equipped. So in their serpent moment, they can be empowered and get past it. So they can live a life fulfilled. When temptation comes in, you can't tolerate it, you can't negotiate with it, you can't incubate on it, and listen to me, you cannot hesitate with it. You've got to move immediately. And you say, well, how do I know when temptation comes in? I don't like it when preachers say this, 
because I really try to give a very good representation of how you can get things done. But this is the truth that I've found counseling people. This is the truth I've found in my personal life with countless testimonies. This is the truth. You will know. But the problem is, the minute you start to touch it, do you remember uh, uh, Eve said, we can't eat it or touch it. You don't have to take it in for it to affect you. The minute you begin to play with it, have you ever had a, gone to the, 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 the uh, pet store and they got all these little puppies and, and, and everything that those, those salespeople are trained to do is to get that puppy in your hand. Because the minute you touch it, you want to take it home. The minute they can get it into the hands of a kid, oh, mommy, look at him. His name is Sprinkles, already named him. Isn't he cute? Because the minute you start playing with something, that's the minute the odds of it coming home with you go through the roof. Jesus didn't play with it. He didn't tolerate it. He didn't hesitate. The downfall of our humanity started in a garden. And so did the rescue. Jesus, heading to uh, his final days, the Bible says that he walked and from afar he saw a fig leaf, a fig tree, and he goes to the fig tree and he says, he goes, uh, he, he looks and as he gets closer he realizes there's no fruit on the fig tree and he curses the fig tree uh, from the root and the Bible says that the next morning it was completely dried up and the apostles were totally astonished that the fig tree that Jesus spoke to that says you can't live anymore dried up overnight. He continues down and he goes and he uh, throws some people out of the temple, out of his daddy's house. And then he goes through the process of having the Lord's Supper. And then the Bible says, he goes, okay, guys, it's time to go pray. Let's go to the garden. And he gets in the garden. And he tells his disciples, "I I want you guys to pray with me. And he finds his disciples sleeping time and time again. You can't live for God because your friends live for God. You live for God because you live for God. Because in the moment when you think you need them the most, not that they're not good friends, but they're going to fall asleep on you. So Jesus, praying in the garden, all of a sudden, Judas and a lynch mob shows up. They want to kill him right there. They're not taking a crucify him. They want to kill him. Judas comes up and gives him a kiss. Jesus said, you deny me? You betray me with a kiss? And they said to Jesus, they said, which one of you is she? And he said what his daddy said to Moses. He said, I am. Everybody was on. And he said, you came to me with a lynch mob. You came to me with stabs and swords. I've taught in the temple all the time. Why do you think you need all this? I could have done anything and wiped you guys out from the beginning. Now, here, I could just see Jesus reach out. Now, get up and arrest me. Dust yourself off so you don't have to tell your boss I just knocked y'all down with two words. 
tie his hands and begin to beat him and torture him. What I'm saying is this. Adam was put in the garden. Was found guilty in the garden. And needed a fig tree to cover his sin. Jesus walked into a garden, was falsely accused, and told the fig tree, you might have needed Adam. My, my, Adam might have needed you, but I don't. Jesus goes, and of course you guys know the story. He's led before a kangaroo court. The decision was already made. And the reality was, is he knew it was coming, and he walked into it. Jesus finished what Adam and Eve started in the garden. In a garden. Because everything that you've done, he paid for. Now, 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 here, here's our problem. Our problem is the message is so good but nobody will hear it unless we say it. The Bible says if you don't have fruit then it's just going to cut you down. Now that's nobody in this room. You're at church. It's an early service on Sunday morning. You love God. But in your life, we've got to get as serious as Jesus is about the lost. 2 Corinthians, verse number 4, chapter 4, verse 3. But if our gospel be hid, whew, it's hid to them that are lost. If the gospel of Jesus is hidden, it's hidden from those who need to hear it. And, and, and listen, th this is Wednesday night. This is a Wednesday night service. Are, are y'all okay for five more minutes? Listen to me. Can I stand right here? The Holy Spirit is calling each one of us to another level. And here's the thing. You'll experience all the blessings. You can eat of every tree. You can freely live the abundant life. But the Holy Spirit of God is calling us seek and to save the lost. I, I'm, I'm not playing around about this. I can't sleep over this. 60, maybe 75 days ago now, I began talking to my friends in my inner circle and I began telling them, I said, listen, I hear the... I hear the cry of the people of this region.
Haunt is not the right word, but it haunts me. I feel the pain of the people I see at restaurants and at, and at the grocery store and at the market. I sense the hurt. If our gospel is hidden, it's hidden from the lost, those who need it the most. One, one, one last story. There was a very wealthy man had a son they were sincere art collectors and they went all over the world buying valuable things and war broke out they had one of the greatest art collections on the planet and and, and war broke out and the son went and dutifully served his country not long into the war father got a message that no parent wants to hear. His son had been killed in battle. Saving another soldier's life. And the father was completely destroyed as you would be, as I would be. Until one day he got a knock on his door. And it was a young man carrying a large box, a large container. And he says, I am the soldier who your son saved from death. We spoke many times about how you loved art and he loved art. And I'm actually a painter and it's going to pale in comparison to all the great pieces that you have. But I painted a portrait of your son. I'd like to show it to you. He opened it up and showed it. And certainly it was no Picasso, it was no Van Gogh. but it accurately depicted his son. And he felt life begin to come back into him. And he said, I'm going to take this painting and I'm going to hang it over my fireplace. And as he went through life, he'd look at that painting and remember his son and the impact he had on the world in war and peace and in the world. And then the father grew deathly ill, and died. And the art world went crazy. Because his will said, I'm going to auction off every piece of art that I own. So the date was set for December 25th, which was the day that the soldier came and brought the present to to the daddy. He said, I want the auction to be on Christmas Day. And all the people came in and had all the paintings there and they were looking and security was heightened to make sure that nobody was going to steal. They were talking millions of dollars worth of paintings. An auctioneer steps up to the platform, says, we're about to begin. Here's the first piece. The painting that the soldier was saved by the sun made. He said, I'd like to start the bidding at $100. The crowd began to murmur. The crowd began to murmur and say, let's get to the good stuff. Nobody wants it. Who even knows that price? There's no value there. Come on, we all all flew here to get here. Let's get to the good stuff. 
The auctioneer says, $50. Nothing. Not much. And then all of a sudden, a neighbor who knew the father, who'd known the son, speaks up and says, I, all I have is $10, but I would love to have that painting. I knew him. The auctioneer says, $10 going once, $10 going twice. Sold for $10. Everybody's like, oh, thank goodness. The auctioneer then says, that now concludes our auction. Everybody freaks. What do you mean that concludes our auction? The auctioneer says, the will of the Father is this. Whoever takes the Son, gets it all. That's a great story. But listen to me. Nobody knew that if they got the Son, they got it all. Could you imagine what they would have paid for the Son? If our gospel is His, if they don't know, they'll lay idols. If our gospel is hidden, if they don't know, how will they choose it? This is our job. Not kind of, and not maybe. Let's pray. Father, you're a good God and we love you. You have equipped us you have legally made it, Lord, where we can transition, Father, from a place that is away from you to a place that is close to you. Father, we understand that your heart is set on the lost. We ask you, Father, to reposition our hearts for the lost. We ask you, Father, in the name of Jesus, to give us this city. Every hurting every crying soul, every individual that is lost, Father. Help us to see them born again, equipped, empowered, and fulfilled by your gospel and by your strength.